On this episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with PSG Talking contributor Cosse Espinosa about the golden era of Spanish football, from the rebirth of Barcelona that spawned the greatest philosophical revolution in football history, to its culmination on the international stage, two European championships, one World Cup. Are they the greatest of all time? We also discuss Messi, Ronaldo, and their respective national teams. All this and more coming up next. It's the Spanish Dynasty, here on the World Cup Project. Jose Espinosa, welcome to the World Cup Project. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. And again, it's another one of these things where I've been trying to get as many people as possible that I know to talk about the World Cup. Because for me, it's what got me into the sport. More than, you know, because obviously from America, it wasn't exactly a burgeoning MLS back when I was a kid. So really the only thing that drew you in were the big, major competitions. So it's great to have people on to talk about it. And you are a great person to have on. Just for the audience, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you love the game so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, um... I, of course, agree with you so much. I mean, the World Cup uh, is such a meaningful tournament. Uh, you can really tell uh, from from people from all walks of life can tell when it's going on, when it's going down. And I think definitely uh, it is the time where a football, soccer, however you want to call it, has the most exposure to, to everyone. And um, I think soccer, uh, for me, it has given me so many memories. It has given me so many memories, not only as a as an audience member, not only as the watcher, but also as a player. And um, seeing even how like my national team brings the country together, brings so people from all different political views, uh, people from all walks of life coming together in the stadium to watch the team play. That's it. That's something that absolutely hypnotizes me. I love it, and that's definitely what got me into, into football. And you're from Ecuador, right? Yes. Just talk a little bit. I know this isn't really scheduled, but talk a little bit about Ecuador and its um, and its footballing tradition, just quickly before we go to the main topics. Yeah, for sure. Like um, being a South American country, Ecuador is a, is a country that puts a lot of a importance in their in their football, their soccer. Uh, is one of their, of course, the, 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 by far the biggest sport in the country. Uh, and Ecuador, we have never been really on the spotlight um, of the footballing world, but we have had a, some very, very good good tournament editions. We qualified for the first time to, the, to a World Cup on 2002. Uh, we qualified again we didn't even need like the playoff spot we just qualified directly uh we uh, went on to reach the run of 16 that that uh that time and uh, we lost to england which was practically the highest point ecuador has ever been i think we were ranked like 13 in 13th in the world that time uh and then it's been well ups and downs we didn't qualify for the 2010 world cup we did qualify for the 2014, but we exited at the group stage after a disappointing group stage. So, and right now it's kind of a trans- is a kind of a transition. We didn't make it to 2018. Um, we'll have to have to bring in new many new players and, and important prospects to see if we can we can uh, bring it up again. 
and it's an interesting um, life in the sense of living on the edge of these major competitions. And I sort of feel like the United States has a similar, um, it's a similar kind of thing. And I think a lot of Americans don't want to really believe that. But I feel like us and countries like us and countries like Ecuador and countries like Honduras, we all kind of live in that same world of we're just we want to be at the at the thing and it's disappointing for i think both of us as americans and as ecuadorians that we're not at this sort of ginormous football party and you do feel like the you do feel like the people that aren't invited to the big party that everyone's going to so you hope that that can change over the years but that's not why you're here why you're here today is to talk about a few topics and the first topic I want to really breach with you is the footballing culture of Spain. Spain being one of the largest footballing nations in the world. Spain right now on the, um, really on the, I guess we call it the rebuild in a sense, that they're now looking to go to the next generation of Spanish players. But before we go there, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to... Just in general, the culture of Spanish football, and just touch on what it means to the people of Spain, the game. Yeah, I mean, um, people in Spain, um, they are, you can practically say they are born with football in their, in their blood, in their veins. Um, absolutely everyone in Spain loves football. Uh, and I think it really comes down to a sense of identity. And Spain is such a, is a country where people, they are so nationalist. Well, not nationalist uh, in that sense because of different uh, naming issues with the civil war and etc. But what I'm trying to say is they really do love their country. And uh, to be able to feel identified with uh, teams that come from their, con from their towns and uh, teams that represent their cities in the biggest tournaments in the world and, and uh, seeing their national team uh, uh, Play in the in the biggest tournament in the world uh, is something that they are born with and something that they absolutely love, and you can see it uh, in all of the influence that it has in their lives because absolutely everyone has a team in Spain. Yeah, and it's another one of those um, footballing countries where there's multiple t teams for one city, which yes. you don't see a lot in certain countries. You don't see it as much in Germany. You don't see it as much in France. But you see it in England and you see it in Spain. Now, the sort of foundation of Spanish football for, at this point, probably 100 years has been Real Madrid and Barcelona. And the fortunes of those two clubs really are, I guess, a, I guess a symbol of the general success of Spanish football as a whole. So when those teams are doing well, you could you would say that the country in general would be doing well in a sense. You, you just talk about that for a minute. Yeah, and it's it is interesting to think about it because uh, if you if you try to compare uh, the history behind Real Madrid and the history behind Barcelona, Real Madrid has always been or had always been uh, the higher contributor or the higher. Uh, 
the higher standard. They were always fighting. Even when they had like bad runs, they were always fighting for the league. They were always fighting for the trophies. Real Madrid is such a great team. And in the end, it ended up being Barcelona, the team that, that uh, made them... Uh, you know, a, become this football power in the world, and I think, and I think, um, a lot of that comes down to the surge of talent that they have in the league. Um, especially when you want to speak about Ronaldo or Messi, uh, these are players that can absolutely change, change games, change uh, teams. Um, I don't know if you saw Barcelona this weekend play without and then with Messi. Uh, they are absolutely a different team, and I think that makes it, it that makes it so clear. Everyone wants to play besides the world best. Everyone wants to play in the best teams in the world. So you can have all the money that England has, and every time you see the biggest transfers, they end up going to Spain. Uh, the only transfers that go back to to England are transfers uh, of teams that have of, of players that have fallen out of favor with their teams. Or players that don't don't uh, don't really reach that level of quality. So you can clearly see everyone uh, for the for the last for the last uh, decade or so has the, the league has moved so much. The football world has moved so, so much in that in that direction, and you can see it even more before uh, when Spain it started to become such a fluid and and, and fantastic national team. Well, and I think a lot of that that culture and heritage did start back in the 50s in the sense that Real Madrid essentially invented European football. And just their ubiquitousness and their dominance in the 50s and into the 60s, where at that point in in Europe, there was a lot more sort of um, regionality when it came to sports. You didn't see the... Uh, really, the only time you saw p- players from different countries play each other was in the World Cup. And the World Cup at that point was only about 20 years old or so. But sort of the strength of Real Madrid in the 50s sort of built that idea that teams could go, teams from Spain could play teams from Italy, and teams from Italy can play teams from France. And I think that really did change the dynamic of how we looked at international football because the team started to like the team started to intermix. Players from Italy started to go play in Spain, players from Spain, well players from France started to go play in England. But the one thing you kind of always had was that the Spanish tended to keep their players in the country for the most part. And again, just talk about the power of those two countries, those two teams specifically, Barcelona and Real Madrid, and how Spain was able to sort of keep its talent, as opposed to sort of farming it out to other parts of the other parts of Europe. Well, and if you think about it, uh, about that, uh, many countries today, France, for example, they they uh, they even though they do have a, a very high input of league on players in their team. They do rely heavily on teams that also play in other leagues in the world. Well, teams like Spain, especially these last few years, but in the World Cup, in the Euros that they won, they rely so much um, on the players from these big, big teams because they are the biggest teams in the world and they have the biggest talent in the world. They have player by player the best positions 
And because these best positions that come from other countries to play with them, they grow the Spanish talent that they have within the team. So you have, obviously, <clears throat> because they play in Spain, um, they have more Spanish talent there, and that would make that talent increase with the best positions of other players in the world. And that obviously bleeds down to the national team, which plays uh, if play players from, from Barcelona, from Real Madrid. They play a combination of these teams, of these players, that play in the best teams in the world, but also play for the same national team. So they already know each other, they, already, they are the best players in the world, and they definitely make the best national team uh, at that time, that won three successive major trophies. Well, before that, though, Spain wasn't necessarily the most successful national team. And you go back to their you go back to their history. Let's go back to let's say from 1950. In 1950, they finished in fourth place. They did yeah. not qualify in 54, 58. They were out of the group stage in 62, 66. Did not qualify in 70 and 74. 78, they were out in the group stage. 70, 82 in the group stage. 86 in the quarters. 90 in the round of 16, 94 in the quarterfinals, so on and so forth. At this point, up until 2010, Spain had never actually made the semifinal of a World Cup. Why do you think that was? Yeah, and, and I mean, uh, their first, their first uh, a big major trophy was the European Championship that they won in 1964. That was their first uh, serious championship. Um, and then, and then uh, they didn't win anything um, until 2008, where they again repeated the win in the European Championship. So I agree with you. Uh, Spain had been known as the underachievers, and they really haven't been um, making any waves uh, in European football, even though they did have uh, many talented players in their squad. That's why they were known as underachievers. They were expected to do better than they actually ended up doing. And how did that um, affect the psyche of the Spanish um, people in the sense of a sporting nation? Very proud sporting nation. They love their football, yet for years and years and years, they were not very good in international competition. Yes, and, and I think they also faced uh, like this this uh, mental mojo or, or, or I mean... Um, you see they exited the quarterfinal in the 1994 World Cup where supposedly they, they should have had a penalty. Then you see their participation in, in 2002 where, where they get eliminated by South Korea, by, uh, Korea with a very controversial match. So I think it all comes down to like the mentality that the players have. And I think that also it relates very importantly, very importantly with um, the level of understanding of international football like that they had. And I think that, like you say, for a long, long time, Spain uh, retained their players and they really didn't have any sort of um, input or, or they didn't have the, the kind of vaccine, if you want to say like that, so that they know how to play international matches against people that don't necessarily play like them. And I think that changes so much with the, um, like everything in the world, with the universalization of, of football. Yeah. And... I, and I would say for a lot of years, the gold standard in international football was the Italians. Now, did they win every competition? No, but you'd see that 
their clubs tended to win more, and their um, and their national team I always felt tended to be the most the most consistent, at least European wise. And I feel like you look you look you look at from a Spanish perspective, you have France winning the World Cup, you have Italy winning the World Cup, you had um, Germany winning the World Cup in the 80s and the 70s. Everyone around you is winning. And a lot of those players, to a certain degree, also at times would play for the top clubs in Spain. You talk about Zinedine Zidane playing for Real Madrid. You even just talk about um, Ronaldo, the first Ronaldo, playing for Real Madrid. You talk about a player like Johan Cruyff, who we'll get to in a minute, who won all of those championships for the Dutch team, he goes and plays at Barcelona. So it's interesting to see that as Spain is the sort of central hub in, a, in certain ways of world football, they're still left out in a way. And it's just sort of an interesting dynamic that really didn't get sort of fixed until this millennium. And we're going to talk about how it got fixed. So, describe to me Johan Cruyff and his impact in Spain as the manager of Barcelona in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, before before uh, Johan Cruyff came to Barcelona, they hadn't won a Liga title in fourteen years. Um, Johan Cruyff had had very very uh, solid. Uh, campaigns in in Netherlands, and I think that he did bring that uh, because the Dutch the Dutch were always so um, innovative in football, and uh, they, he brought this verticality and this um, a, a, I don't want to say I don't want to say too much passing yet, but it was this verticality, this 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 um, play one touch two touch football that that absolutely revolutionized the world the world, the way he. Excuse me. That um, his Barcelona played, and he was able to win the first Liga title in 14 years. And you talk about Johan Cruyff and how he changed not only the tactics, but he also changed the way that Barcelona ran its youth academies as well. Yes, um, they. I mean, for the first time, uh, you saw players uh, being important from La Masia, who's been such a huge, huge part of of, uh, of a Barcelona's football, and that uh, at that time it, it did it did as well. But it, even later would would uh, influence so much uh, players that Barcelona would be able to bring to their academies and then become world class talent. That instead of spending millions and millions of dollars, of they would just be able to to have on their squad. Yeah, and part of that was because Barcelona was in a lot of financial strain in the '90s, wasn't it? Yes, and uh, as we know, Barcelona has never been been excellently managed. So yeah. I agree that, that definitely being able to to uh, rely on on homegrown players that don't require as much economical resources and end up being anyway uh, uh, very very talented and, and and recognized players is very fortunate. So, let's talk about some of the players that came out of that Barcelona system and how they were able to sort of create this style all of their own. We talk about Andres Iniesta, we talk about 
uh, Carlos Puyol. We talk about Xavi Alonso. We talk about Sergio Busquets. We talk to a certain degree about Sergio Ramos. Not even, well, Ramos to a degree, but he was Real Madrid. Um, let's just go into sort of how you can get all of these just unbelievable world-class players in the same place at the same time. It just seems like the stars aligning in a way that you wouldn't think is exactly possible. But Barcelona were able to do it. Yeah, and I mean, um, you speak with uh, you speak with um, with Real Madrid players. Um, it, I mean, with Real Madrid uh, fans that saw their their Real Madrid team, a team that was used to dominating, a team that was used to winning everything, um, crumble so 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 uh, hard against against these these uh, Barcelona that went and, and went and won the Champions League, went and and won the Clásicos, European Cups, uh, uh, won absolutely everything. Uh, just because of of this of this um, idea where where Johan Cruyff would say, well, you know, just salir uh, y go out and enjoy, and they would feel that they were just invincible because of this mentality. And you you push that forward, and you talk about a player that Johan Cruyff essentially uh, mentored, and that's Pep Guardiola. And I want to just as somebody who's played the game understand how that style, that total football of Johan Cruyff, turned into what I guess we could call the tiki-taka Pep Guardiola style, and what that style really is. Yeah, and you see, uh, I I feel uh, Pep Guardiola, I mean, I feel that the the spirit behind tiki-taka is such a feeling of... of, uh, uh, family and uh, and uh, friendship and uh, it sounds very corny when I say it, but uh, I think I have you had players that had such a level of maturity, football IQ, uh, caringness. They fell for each other. You see, uh, I mean, uh, gentlemen in football like uh, Carlos Puyol, um, Andres Iniesta, like you, you said, these are players that that could communicate very effectively. And that could translate their skills, uh, make to uh, potentialize even other players, which makes the style uh, very fluent. Because when players, and I know this as a player, when you trust your teammates, it makes so much better. You feel so much more comfortable in the field. Uh, everything just works. And I think that uh, that is why some of the, that is one of the reasons why um, the mental aspects and uh, the, the intangible part of soccer is so important. Because you look at it too, and you and I, I think this is sort of the real difference that you saw, which was that you watch old, um, let's say you're watching old '90s to early 2000s Premier League um, film. What you're watching is a very sort of direct game with a lot of very um, simple tenants that had been in the game for 30, 40 years. Wide play outside, crosses into the box, big center backs, big uh, center forwards, um, good, solid, compact defensive teams that could hit you on the counter. And Barcelona, to an extent, blew that all up almost for good. Now, there had been teams that had been expansive in the past, but Barcelona just took it to this different sort of level of we're going to keep the ball 
we are going to pass it 30, 40, 50, maybe even more times in a possession. And the goals we're going to score, and, I, and I've heard it described as sometimes just sort of walking the ball into the net, but you see this film of Barcelona, especially in the mid to late 2000s, they're walking the ball into the net. How does that even work strategically? Like, it just seems so intricate that you don't necessarily think it would work. But just go into the strategy behind that sort of football. Yeah, I mean, um, the thing is, even if, even in Twitter, uh, you open Twitter and you see highlights from, uh, what, 15, 16 years ago uh, in the Premier League. Uh, very, like you said, very direct, long balls. Uh, big forwards expected to play with a back to goal, protect the ball. Uh, very direct football, I agree completely. Um, these teams were used to playing very direct, fast football. Uh, long balls, trying to make things happen because uh, it looked like it was going to be better that way. It just necessarily looked like it was better to just pass forward. Um, but what, what I think what a lot of what Barcelona did was they combined um, this huge, uh, amazing technical ability that their players have with the ball. The way that they treat the ball beautifully, their passes were exact. A laser driven. Uh, they combine this uh, this ability to to do the individual uh, disequilibrium, being able to take out players one on one and then pass, take out player, pass, take out player, pass. And the thing is, when you do play the style, you completely destroy any type of formation or any type of discipline that the other team has. And that's why teams, even even Mourinho's Real Madrid, that later years later would try to to destroy the team by playing uh, so so aggressive um, would fail because players would just get rid of their player with their big te- with their big and good technical skills and then pass and by creating this they would break lines destroy the the, the discipline the defense and like you said effectually um, walk the walk the ball into an empty net. Well, yeah, and and talk about that too because when you talk about breaking lines and we talk about what it defense and football is trying to do, how that passing just forces players into positions that they don't want to be, even just getting to that kind of minute detail of what a defense is trying to do and how this style just broke that completely down. Yes, and and, and uh, I, I think you uh, would be able to see some of that uh, in the... Uh, I wouldn't say early, early, but early-ish uh, tenure of Luis Enrique with Barcelona. Uh, they would use this, this, as I said before, technical ability to draw players uh, out of position. Uh, in football, as I said, lines are supposed to cover players, give protection to the defense, uh, and, and try to stop passes. That was the, That is the main function. Um, but these runs and this technical ability to, to take out players and move them out of position would destroy these lines and allow for spaces that teams do not want to have. Uh, and by allowing these spaces, uh, a team with the technical ability Barcelona had would just be able to pass themselves into the goal. And and, and uh, even as a PSG fan, I remember uh, Luis Enrique, I'm not even saying uh, Pep Guardiola's or Rohan Cruz, just as recent as Luis Enrique's Barcelona um, walked the ball into the net three times against PSG. Yeah. And... Now, I think what is really fascinating about this is how 
their national team, which we talked about in its lack of success, and this is where we kind of tie things in, how the national team made that conscious decision, well, Barcelona plays this way, so half of our team is essentially Barcelona. Let's just play like Barcelona. And how sort of... And I mean, there has been a history of certain national teams mirroring sort of the top level of their um, of their sort of their clubs and sort of mirroring the style. But I don't think you can see a more similar um, style or sort of an incorporation of a style than what Spain did uh, for its national team to basically mimic what Barcelona had been doing on the club level for what had been about a year or two, maybe even a little bit longer than that. Yeah, and and, uh, now that you mention it, I think that, uh, for example, Germany is, like you said, another good example that uh, their national team uh, mirrors a lot of the characteristics that their top team, Bayern Munich, does. Yeah. Um, but I agree. The, the the resemblance the Spanish team had that with, with that Barcelona was, um, uh, um, like I mean, just completely the same. And I think that that falls back also with what I said before about how uh, Spain used to rely more more on the Real Madrid legends, the the Real Madrid money, the Real Madrid influence. And in the end, it it ended up being that new style. Uh, that new idea that was that was uh, bringing upon football uh, to bleed into that national team, like you said, they would they would understand, they would see Barcelona going well. They're playing this style of football. They have so many good talented Spanish players that we are bringing into our national team right now. That the rest of the players must be uh, must play the same, and that is something that that you also need to remember. Um, a lot of people, and I'm going to repeat this again. A lot of people, when when Spain said uh, when Spain won the World Cup, they said, "Well, this is a Barcelona World Cup," and uh, that's because the, a, a, even like Real Madrid was reduced to being part of the LA teams because Barcelona has such a big, huge like their their style of football has such a huge influence um, in their national team that they probably managed to shut out. Uh, or just give a few players the chance to be in a national team, even from other huge clubs like Real Madrid. Yeah, and the and as a fan, really the first time that I got you know into it to a great degree was during those years of Spanish dominance. And the one thing you know you you notice about that Spanish national team is, you know, Fernando Torres is a pretty you know pretty good player, but he's not in any way what you would call a typical dominant number nine. And you saw that Spain basically built their national team through the midfield. And the Busquets, the Iniestas, the Alonsos. And it didn't really matter who they had up top. Just, again, talk about how that they really dominated without sort of a what you would call a reliable goal scorer, if you want to, if you want to put it in quotes like that. Oh well, yeah, and, and uh, like you said, um, they did not have many dynamic. I mean, they did not have very typical number nines up top, but they more as well, they uh, more as well relied uh, on more uh, dynamic forwards and very technical forwards like Fernando Torres, like David Villa, that you know could grab the ball, that you know could pass. 
uh, and that was because they needed these types of forwards to be able to fit the style that their midfield, like, as exactly as you said, would present. Their midfield would try to pass, would try to break lines, would try to hog possession. Uh, to do this, they would have to be passing very well, and they would have to have many uh, passing options so that they could avoid being uh, caught out of possession. And what this would uh, eventually mean was that the forwards would have to come in and participate in this possession as well. And having dynamic and technically uh, apt players uh, like like uh, Fernando Torres and David Villa would suit their style better than having a big, strong number nines that, that uh, maybe would not have the same level of technique. And you can tell that in just looking at the starting lineup for their 2010 World Cup uh, final, you had uh, Piquet was Barcelona, Puyol was Barcelona, Busquets at that time I think was Barcelona, Xabi was Barcelona, uh, Xabi Alonso was Barcelona, Iniesta. The spine of the team, the heart of the team was Barcelona. And... I, and I just go back to that 2010 World Cup, and I mean, I, I I just remember a team that the only way, literally the only way the Netherlands could stay with them. The Netherlands were an okay team. They weren't world beaters, but they had talent on that team. The only way they could stay with them was to essentially just foul them every chance they got. And just sort of uh, yeah. how how uh, desperate it looked for them. Just if these are the two best teams in the world, one of these teams is a hell of a lot better than the other one. Yeah, of course. And 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 you saw the Netherlands. Uh, they had a, a very successful tournament. They got to the final. Uh, they were. Uh, it, they they played good football throughout the tournament. Uh, they like you said, they had a lot of talent in their squad, and you could uh, you could tell that that they just. Uh, could not uh, uh, get any sense of, of a way to control the game. They were completely at mercy, and uh, and uh, like you say, they they had to resort to fouls and and physical force to be able to cut their passes and cut their channels uh, because they were getting overrun. Then they over and they, I mean, I think if it had gone to penalties, they would have won anyway. But it really would have been a crime against. Um, footballing history if the Netherlands had won that World Cup. And in hindsight, it just feels like, yeah, Spain, that was Spain's World Cup. And yes, they just kind of barely pulled it out in the end, but it really would have been criminal if it was anybody else. And you look at that, just that stretch, European Championship in 2008, I actually was in Rome for that, and I watched it on a small little television that they rolled into the hotel uh, main room. They won that 1-0, and that was, again, that wasn't even very, if I remember it right, that wasn't even very even game yeah, anyway. No. They, they were I, better than Germany, and then they were better than the Netherlands in that final, and then in the Euros, they were, again, clearly the better team. They, I believe they beat Italy 4-1, to something like that. Yes. Uh, no. No. You've seen the last finals in Spain. Uh, they have, they've dominated uh, uh, the, the, the the finals in their in their uh, in their years where where they were good. They they won, of course, two European championships. They won the 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 World Cup. And like you say, they were so much superior in the World Cup. Uh, Spain absolutely steamrolled everyone who who it came up against. Even even when they had very uh, even when they lost against against uh, uh, Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland was was struggling so much to to control them and to be able to get them 
and and it, that that was a crime in football that that Switzerland won that game. But I agree with you. Uh, Spain played uh, so much beautiful football, and it was their World Cup to win. Yeah, and just going through their World Cup again, they they got through the group stage. They won the group stage on goal differential. They lost to Switzerland, as you said. Beat Honduras 2-0. Beat Chile 2-1. Uh, in the round of 16, they beat Portugal 1-0. In the quarterfinals, they beat Paraguay 1-0. And then in the semifinals, they beat Germany 1-0. And that led us to the World Cup final that we just talked about. The scores don't make it seem like they were steamrolling people. But you have to kind of take into account that they put a lot of teams on the defensive, and a lot of those teams just parked the bus. Yeah, and, and, and you have to you have to remember it's the World Cup. Teams are going to take absolutely their best uh, available squad, and they're going to do uh, the best that they can. Uh, the way that, that uh, um, Spain uh, won against Chile with that amazing David Villagolazo, um the way the way that Spain uh, came back from giving a penalty against Paraguay, missing their own penalty that they were given, uh, they still won. It came a lot down to a lot of character and to a lot of mentality, and I think that is also something that 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 characterizes that era for me. Is that not only were the players formidable uh, football wise, but they were so strong uh, against teams. Every time they were presented adversity, they would be able to find a way to come out on top. And I think the question now about Spain is, when we talk about history, are they, in that run, the greatest national team in international football history? Because, again, my argument for it would be, how do you sustain four years like that, where you win everything and you pretty much win it going away? I mean... it's a tough argument, but I think Spain has to be put up there with the likes of Germany in the 70s and 80s, the likes of France in that late 90s run, and the Brazil teams, although the Brazil teams never really were able to kind of accumulate in the way that that Spanish team did. Yeah, and, and I, I feel like I don't see a reason why they shouldn't. I, I agree completely with you. They... Uh, are are part of the that Spanish team is part of the, the most brilliant generation of soccer players uh, I have I have been able to, to see play in my in my short life and and uh, I think they definitely have to go with with the greatest in, in football history they have to be there um, definitely they have the talent and they have proven it by winning so much even if Brazil has been so consistently they have been winning so consistently and they can show it because they do they are the team. Uh, that they have the most World Cup uh, World Cup trophies, but yeah. uh, for so many years Spain used the same players to dominate against teams. And I think, in generationally speaking, maybe not in the whole history, but generationally speaking, that Spain has to be in the best teams in history. Yeah, and that I think is the main point that we're making. In that, I'm not sure there's a group of players, just a singular group of players that did as much as the Spanish national team did. And it's quite impressive when you think about how much more parity there even is in football now than, let's say, even you know, 30, 40 years ago. In that, 
the competitions are the competitions consist of more teams. The teams are better coached. I mean, you look at the '60s and the '70s. How many of those national teams were even remotely competently coached, or had any sort of training facilities or any sort of you know health plans or any sort of consistency and continuity? Spain did it in an era where football is now becoming a multi-billion-dollar business, which means that you have national teams that are capable of kind of competing and you know putting together a product on the field that's halfway respectable. And Spain just just ran through them. And yeah, go ahead. No, I'm I, I agree completely with what you say. Um, I mean, you can see teams uh, today, even teams that don't come from from footballing nations, uh, they put out players that play in, in not the best teams in the world, but in competitive leagues. And you see teams, um, Albania, Macedonia, they will not be be qualifying for the World Cup or anything like that. But they are definitely not just a group of of amateur players. They are professional players that play in leagues around the world. And it's it's interesting too when you look at I think what you what you got out of Spain and what I think is the future for Spain, which is all of a sudden I think this Spanish team has snuck up on some people. They snuck up on me. Now we recording we're recording this in early April, so about a week after they absolutely destroyed Argentina without Messi, but. Still a professional team. Six to of, one. Of world-class players. Of world-class players, absolutely. What are Spain's chances this year? I put them in my top four. I wasn't sure I was going to put them in my top four, but I, I think I think their young core of players, the new generation of Spanish players, may be more ready than I gave them credit for. Well, I think for me, um, the latest uh, trend in international football uh, would be somewhat of what we see in club football today. And I'm not talking about uh, the, the country of origin, but I'm more talking about there's these three big uh, national teams that, that are out there and then all of the rest are okay. And I think that for me, the, the biggest three nations in the world, footballistically speaking, are Germany, Brazil and Spain. Those are, for me, the best three teams in the world that right now, between them, they can hurt each other. But if any of those three teams face anyone else, for me, they are almost 90% sure to win. Yeah, and I would make maybe a sentimental argument, but I'd make an argument that France is right right underneath there with the potential yes. to get there. Yes. yes. And maybe Belgium, if they put it all together, like... I think there's five teams that could possibly win. And I think two of those teams are long shots, and that's France and Belgium. And let's just talk about the specific players in, in Spain. The Iscos, the um, Tiagos, the... Um, trying to even think, my mind's blanking on me, but you can go through the list of... Of course, that, of course. Of, those, of the new generation of Spanish stars. Of course, and, and something that I absolutely love about uh, Julian Lopetegui is how he's not afraid 
to go outside of the norm. He's not afraid to go outside of what is expected of him and pick the players that he know can. And I'm, I don't think I don't think I don't think uh, Lopetegui is a genius of any kind. But I do think that he I, he has um, earned my respect and he has earned my my admiration for him because he has been able to bring players that don't are, that are, don't play in Barcelona that don't play in Real Madrid that bring so much to the national team um, when he brings Diago Aspas uh, when, you know how much David De Gea you know how much of a of a Valencia fan I am uh, Dani Parejo Rodrigo Moreno. These are players that do not play under the best teams in the world, but they play in the, one of the best leagues in the world, and they have they bring so much so much uh, attributes, technique, pace. Uh, he has been able to combine that player with uh, those new exciting players, with the young, uh, with the still remaining young parts, um, quote unquote, a young um, of the Spanish team that remain. He has been able to. Uh, take out the best of Iniesta, Ramos, Piquet, the, 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 the old players that are still there uh, by making them great with new players, not only Isco or Asensio or, or, or fantastic players that come from Barcelona or Madrid, but also very good and influential players from other teams around the world. And it's important that your national teams have depth. And... I think Spain, for all of its glory years in the late, you know, the late 2000s, early 2010s, I never thought of Spain as a team with a lot of depth. I think they really didn't need it because the the 11, the 12, 13, 14 players they had were just so good it didn't really matter. But I think as these other teams start to catch up. I think the one thing that Spain is doing really well is I think they're building a really deep roster of young players that they'll be able to choose from and that they'll be able to mold and uh, adapt with over the next uh, few tournaments. So again, just talk about their depth and just sort of what the what the pipeline looks like in Spain for the next, I mean, let's say the next five to ten years. Yeah, and, and uh, I think what we're seeing in Spain is uh, a little bit similar, uh, but also different from a, the, the kind of depth that the German national team is, is falling upon right now. Uh, they are different in the sense that, uh, of course, almost all of the depth uh, that the German national team has, has been able to accumulate uh, these last few years is, is through their own country and their system. But... Uh, it's the same in the sense that uh, Spain has a, invested a lot in the youth. They know that the future is uh, what's important if they are able to, if they want to remain a relevant nation in, the, in football, in world football. And I think you can see that with players uh, all around the world uh, uh, popping up. Uh, Marcos Alonso, uh, he was fairly unproved before he moved to Chelsea, uh, and he, he had that fantastic uh, season last season with Chelsea. Uh, Yuri Berzice, who was uh, a, he's not he's not of course called up, but who was probably not even as, as recognized as he is now after playing for PSG. Uh, you have players in Spain that go out uh, of the country, even if they remain in. They sometimes go out. Uh, they give good performances. They show they are good players. And then you have Julian Lopetegui with a beautiful problem, which is he has so many so many players to choose from, and he can choose from. 
uh, Diego Costa at Atletico for forward, or Morata who plays for Chelsea, or Rodrigo who plays for Valencia, or he has so many options. And of course, having depth, uh, being able to field a very competitive under-21 side that absolutely bulldozed uh, in the Euros, uh, that that influences uh, very strongly how 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 bright their future looks for them. And I think this team's going to be different in style than the 2010-2012 uh, Spanish team was. I think you're going to... They have a lot better forwards than they've had in years and years. I mean, Morata's not a world beater, but he's a very good player. Diego Costa, I think, in a national, you know, international tournament, I think the guy will still be very good. And he was once, like, he was once one of the best. Yeah. And you have Isco, I, I, I mean... If I can have a chance to watch Isco, I will, you know... He's one of those guys that if you just watch one guy, you watch him. Because yeah. he can do so many things. And it is so different, I think, from the identity that the Spanish national team had, let's say, you know, five, ten years ago. If the identity is sort of going to be built around Isco and his ability to create out of the midfield... You're going to see a very different type of Spain, but I think you're going to see a very effective type of Spain. Yes, and I think that that also comes down to a lot uh, of the influence of the players. Uh, like we said before in 2010, uh, this, the, the team uh, that supported Spain the most was going to be Barcelona. Now it's going to be Real Madrid. They have so many players in their squad, and they have so many players that are playing so well. Uh, we know even Real Madrid, they haven't had the best season in La Liga this season, uh, but they they were absolutely stunning in the Champions League. We know how good they can be. Uh, and they have all these players that are influencing Spain. That instead of just being a possession team now, uh, they will still have that because of their old cross players. But now they will have, as you say, a much more effective, uh, incisive and fast possession. Uh, much more direct than we see before because of the new players that they're bringing in. And that's going to be... It's going to be interesting to see. And let's talk about... The two biggest stars in La Liga, players you've watched for years and years, that everybody's watched for years and years, and to a certain degree, the World Cup is not only about teams, it's about stars. And the two stars are Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. Let's start with Ronaldo, and let's talk about how he's sort of been the... He's been Portuguese football, and Portuguese football... There was a thing, you know, Portuguese football was a thing before Cristiano Ronaldo. They had the um, they had the years of Eusebio, and I believe was that that had been the 50s and 60s. But you look at Portugal before Ronaldo, like the the years immediately before Ronaldo, they were not any good. And I mean, I'll pull it up in a minute, but just again talk about Portugal. And it's just the one country over. And, and look, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. Portugal in the World Cup, they only qualified twice in the whole history of the World Cup up until 2002. And ironically enough, Cristiano Ronaldo started playing for the Portuguese national team in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, um, Ronaldo, uh, well, everyone knows uh, Ronaldo's story. Uh, like you say, uh, Portugal, uh, Portuguese football 
Uh, if we talked about Spain and how they were underachievers, uh, you can you can't even compare that to what Portugal was. Uh, they, like you said, they were proven for for uh, 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 producing good players, um, but they were never able to translate that into international team success. And you you saw players like uh, you said Eusebio, Deco, uh, Pauleta in, at PSG. Uh, they were Portuguese players that were of, of very high quality, exciting players that weren't able to really translate that huge um, a, a amount of. Well, Paleta more, but but uh, that huge amount of quality to the national team, and um, I think, like you said, after Cristiano Ronaldo, Portuguese uh, the the phase of Portuguese football changes. It becomes flashy, it becomes sleek, elegant. You know, that's the Portugal, the Cristiano Ronaldo Portugal, the fast Portugal um, that that uh, produces uh, players that 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 play. Um, in in most of the best leagues in the world, but follow this icon and this legacy, which is this player that absolutely revolutionized their team, uh, made them made them appear in the in the world map, and that effectively brought the first major trophy ever. Yeah, and not just because he plays for PSG, but you can see the the line from Cristiano Ronaldo now to Gonzalo Guedes, who's right now playing, who's on loan to Valencia from PSG. And you can just tell that Ronaldo, in certain ways, is that sort of um, that ground zero of where everything else is coming out of now. And you saw how Portugal built a very good, solid defensive team. And I think sort of the best compliment you can give Portugal is that in that, well, not very high quality uh, 2016 European Championship, he gets hurt in the final, and they're defensively sound enough, and they have just enough to beat a France team that, by all means, should have beat them by three or four goals once Ronaldo went down. So it's not only that Ronaldo is just so dominant, it's also that I think with the rise of Ronaldo also came the rose, uh, the rising of all the other people around him. And he's sort of been a rising tide in that way for a Portuguese team that, again, before him really wasn't much. Yeah, and, and you see teams, uh, I mean players, um, Ricardo Quaresma, Pepe, Bruno Alves, they're all players that, that uh, it, it became became to be uh, in that time uh, where Ronaldo was becoming this great, fabulous legend that he is now. And you see, uh, Portugal team, like you said, was not absolutely fantastic, and it wa- wasn't uh, their campaign either. Uh, in the in the Euros, they had a very shaky group stage, uh, and they did need a Ronaldo hero performance to to pass uh, uh, Wales in the in the in the tournament. But I do think that that uh, Fernando Santos is a fantastic is a fantastic coach, and I think he knew. I think he knew that that Portugal team needed to play behind Ronaldo, and he created this defensive unit to support the whole team, uh, making sure they don't concede, while Ronaldo uh, made sure that they score goals. Yeah, and it's not necessarily pretty to watch Portugal yeah. over the years, but you look at a team that went from pretty much not qualifying for the World Cup in 60 years or so, or qualifying twice to... Group stage, fourth place in 2006, the round of 16 in 2010, and then the group stage in 2014, 
But I think this team has a really good chance of getting out of that group that they're in this year. I mean, Portugal, Spain, Morocco, Iran, they should they should get six points automatically. They really should out of those um, out of Morocco and Iran and then fight it out with Spain. And then if I look at the if I understand the the maps right or understand the the brackets right, they're going to get the winner or the loser of Group A, which is Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Uruguay. There's a really good chance that this Portugal team can get to the round of the round of eight. There's a very good chance. Well, but I think I agree with. First of all, I agree with you. I do think that this team. Uh probably has the, the biggest amount of talent he's had in many, many years. Uh, the likes of Andre Silva, Ejo Mario, Cedric Suarez, um, eh, so many new, Gonzalo eh, so many new exciting uh, football players. And Andre Gomez, who hasn't been as, as excellent with Barcelona, but, but was a fantastic for Valencia. They have a very solid team. And like you said, they should be able um, to get out of that group. But I also think it's important to remember that Portugal have struggled um, a lot with being the more dominating and the more strong uh, a, a team in a match. And I think that that weighs on them. They are not used to being the team that dominates. They had trouble against Russia in the Confederations Cup. They had trouble against Mexico. Um, they had trouble against New Zealand. This, this is a team that is not used to dominating matches. And I think that facing organized, disciplined teams like Morocco and Iran could uh, in a in a uh, alternate situation, uh, arise problems for them. Yeah, and that makes sense in that you really do feel like um, you do feel like Portugal is still to a degree a one man team. And speaking of one man teams, let's talk about Lionel Messi. And I think it's a little uh, cruel of me to call Argentina a one man team, but in the sense that there's really only one man that matters. You can kind of say that, yeah, they're a one-man team. And Lionel Messi has had all of the success that you could ever want. He's been possibly, and I would say he's one of the greatest players to ever live. I'd put him in my top three. Because, again, it's hard to say, you know, somebody's the best player when they're not done playing. Yeah. But he's at this point, if he retired tomorrow, I would put him in my top three. And I, as you know, living in this in this uh, in this time in football history, have gotten to see him. But all that being said, being one of the top three players of all time has never won a major international competition, not a Copa America and not a World Cup. And you talk about the people that he's in competition with for that sort of greatest of all time. They've all won World Cups. There's not one on the list that hasn't. And I feel like, and we say this all the time, that, you know, when is it going to be the last chance? And I feel like this is the last chance. For a, a number of reasons with Messi. One is because by the time 2022 comes around, he'll be 34 years old. And at that point, he really, you know, miracles yeah. of modern medicine aside, yeah. 
he's probably not going to be the best player on that Argentina team. He can't, he can't be a one my team by then. But if but let's put it this way: if Lionel Messi at 34 years old is still the best player on Argentina, what does that say about Argentina's development of players? What does that say about the health of their national team? There's a lot of ground to cover, but let's start just with Messi's World Cup history. A couple of okay ones. 2014, he was really good, probably the player of the tournament. But again, they couldn't get they couldn't get it done. Well, um, I do think that Argentina is a team that has so much talent uh, in its barracks. It's a team that uh, whatever eleven they put out, they should always put out a competitive eleven. Uh, they are facing this weird, um, <clears throat> I don't even know how to call it, mojo, uh, a magic curse. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, this Argentina team uh, cannot play together as a team. And they um, have so many mistakes. Some people it's say ego. Some people say it's mentality. We don't really know, or I don't really know. But uh, I, do, I do know that without Messi... Uh, my half-baked Ecuador team steamrolled over Argentina 2-0 um, in the in the World Cup qualification in Buenos Aires. Uh, that's just how much of a of a um, of of, a, of an importance he carries. And, uh, in it, yeah, it's just sorry to cut you off there for a second, but you look at it; it's not like Argentina are this team that's been eternally cursed. They've had. A load of success in their career, in their in their sorry not in their career they've had a load of success in their history. This is a team that's won two World Cups. This is a team that's won the Copa America fourteen times. But in the sort of irony of ironies, with arguably their best player in their history, I mean it's either him or Maradona, and I think for a totality of a career, Messi's a better player than Maradona was. Well, but, but ha- yeah. Having said that, having said that, having uh, uh, said how important he is to this Argentinian team and how much he has achieved, and and having said, having agreed that he is, uh, well, for me at least, the best player in the world and the best player in, in that national team by far. I do think that this uh, Lionel Messi couldn't guide Argentina to, to a World Cup or couldn't guide Argentina to a Copa America uh, the, or this, Argent, this idea that Argentina is just a one-man team. Uh, I think it is a little bit exaggerated by the media in the sense that they want Messi to be so good that they want Argentina to fail without him. Uh, and and I think that has, that has uh, really a expanded or exaggerated the view I think that Argentina lost the World Cup final because they were not good enough and just because Germany had a better team than they had even with Argentina having a Lionel Messi as did Chile twice so I do think that Argentina they've been unlucky uh, uh, but they just hadn't have a they, they had great teams that's why they got to the final even if they didn't play the most amazing football but in the end they couldn't win it because they weren't good enough not because Messi not because they didn't have a good Messi on that day. Well, now that begs that begs another question, which is when you have a player as good as Lionel Messi for the span of ten years as a as a national team player, how is it possible that Argentina and its football federation have not 
figured out sort of the best team to put around him. And I've watched them in qualification the last couple of years. That team does not fit Lionel Messi. There's too many players that play like him. There's not that sort of, you know, however good you think Gonzalo Higuain is, I, I, I'm not at that point where I go, okay, he's a great complimentary piece to Lionel Messi. This guy compliments Messi well. It just feels like Lionel Messi's there, and he's better than everybody, but you still have great players, but those great players don't know really how to play with him. And they don't know how to create a system that showcases him and kind of puts him in a unit that, you know, takes advantage of all of his many positives. Just go go off on that for a minute. Just tell, am I am I off base when I when I no, say no. that? I, I, yeah, I agree. I agree completely with what you say, and I think that uh, that is something that the Portugal Federation has done so well. Um, is is bring, being able to bring up and step up their players uh, to match the quality. Uh, even if not, of course, not no other Portuguese player has gotten even close to to the quality Ronaldo has displayed throughout his career. But you have players like Andre Gomez uh, playing in the in the in the best teams in the world. Gonzalo Guedes ripping it up in, in the best league in the world. Uh, Diego, Gomez, Bruno Alves, Pepe. Um, they are they are all playing in, in European professional leagues that that uh, demand very much. Ricardo Quaresma, Champions League player. Um, they have a very, very good squad that they've done because of this. And I think that, like you said, the Argentinian Football Federation has failed uh, to be able to bring this new uh, generation of players alongside Messi. Uh, for a long time, uh, a lot of Argentinians said uh, it's it's Messi's friends, you know, like this this, this Argentinian uh, national team is Messi's friends. He decides who comes, he decides who goes. Uh, I can't believe we're still starting Mascherano. Um, they have not been able to, like you said, form a team that plays uh, with Lionel Messi, and they have not been able to to uh, make players rise up to that level, even if they have so much talent uh, in their barracks. And, and part of it too is that you look at you look at that back line, and it's deteriorated. I mean, that back four is nowhere near, I think, World Cup champion quality, like. Mascherano's playing in China right now. Like, these are not... You, I mean, you look at even Brazil. You look at Brazil, and you look at... Every one of those players on that Brazilian national team has quality. Of varying degrees, but they all... You look at them, they're all, okay, these players are genuine... You could make the argument they're in their prime. The team seems to evolve. It seems to morph into something else or different as the years go by. Argentina's like, Paulo Dybala can't make this team for some reason. Mario Riccardi can't make this team for some reason. Yet, it's still Gonzalo Higuain. It's still Angel Di Maria. It's still Javier Mascherano. And it, it's like it's in a time warp in a certain way. And I think you kind of spoke to that. But let, let me ask you the question. It's a pretty simple one. Do you think they have any... Do you think Messi's good enough at this point to do what he did in 2014, or is the competition at this point just sort of too good for Messi to be able to do that over the span of a month? Well, the thing is, uh, they did um, 
People like to say that they did give a easy group to Argentina, but I do not agree. I, I don't agree either. I think that's a yes. that's a trappy that's a difficult trap type group. Exactly. I think that they have uh, a lot of, of obstacles to overcome in the in the group stage, uh, like they did in the in the twenty fourteen group stage. And I think uh, these are very big physical teams that will fight Argentina. And Argentina has been known to 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 flounder and have many problems with physical teams when, when physical teams do not let them play the game that they want to play. Um, and and uh, I, I think, I, I don't even consider, I think I don't want to say no because in football anything can happen, of course, but I don't think Argentina has a chance of winning this World Cup. Yeah, they're not in my top five. I mean, they're in my top ten of teams that could win. They're not in my top five. Uh, let's, quickly before we go, let's cover two of the other major South American teams that are in this World Cup. Let's cover Colombia and let's cover Uruguay. Um, Uruguay's won it before a long, long time ago, but they've had they've had what you'd call consistent success. They win trophies. They're not a elite team in the world at the moment, but they're still quality. Colombia is an interesting group. Um, a lot of their success in 2014 was due to James Rodriguez and Recently, they showed that they could go into France and beat France at the Stade de France, which is not an easy thing to do. Two interesting teams with his, with some history who are going to look to make noise in the World Cup. Just anything on those two teams and what you're looking at for their, two, their 2018 World Cup. Yes. Um, so, for Colombia, um, I think that they do have a very, very good squad this year. Uh, they have a fabulous center back pairing with uh, Davison Sanchez and Yeri Mina, and they they have very good quality forward players, a, a very intelligent coach. Uh, they are a very talented group of players, and I think uh, they should be able to to uh, if not win <laughs> uh, easily easily go through their group. Um, and I think they they should be able to at least get to the quarterfinals this this edition because they have world class players in almost every position uh, and and even the players that they they are calling up from lower European leagues like the Eredivisie uh, lower quote unquote um, and and uh, the South American leagues they they still have a fantastic team that they will need and that they I feel they will use uh, to reach at least the quarterfinals of this World Cup. Uh, is Hamas back to being Hamas? Uh, I don't think it's 100 Hamas again, but I do think he is a player with so much experience and quality on his foot that will be able to be feel complimented with uh, players like Falcao or Luis Muriel that play in the Champions League and have the quality to get the best out of him, even if he is not that, the same Hamas we saw at the last World Cup. Yeah, and what I like about Colombia is I think they're going to be able to press teams. I think they're going to give teams trouble. I think they're fast. And they're good enough offensively. They're going to be able to get a couple goals in these games to to sort of take advantage of what I think is sort of a very athletic, younger team. So yeah. I, I like their chances. What about Uruguay? You haven't really heard a lot about them in the build-up yeah. to this World Cup. And uh, just to finish off Colombia, um, yeah. they will have to be very careful when they play Poland and uh, in, in a certain degree Senegal as well because... Uh, Poland is a very big physical team, and uh, Colombia struggled very much with with uh, big teams. They played Australia midweek. Uh, they had a terrible time with Australia. Big players, 
um, they they do not they don't they don't thrive on that system. So they will have to be very careful against Poland, but they should still be able to go through. And Uruguay. Yeah, um, Uruguay. Well, uh, they have fantastic players, of course, playing in the best leagues. Uh, Edison Cavani himself, uh, Luis Suarez, Diego Gordín, Jiménez, uh, even even uh, fringe players like uh, Nicolas Lodero, uh, ripping it up in MLS. They have, uh, I think, a very very talented squad, um, and they should be able to win the group if not for uh, Russia. Uh, they are a better team than Russia, so I believe that they should win the group, but. Uh, Russia will have home advantage, and uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia are not easy teams. Every team in the World Cup is very tricky, and uh, the the Achilles heel for Uruguay will be that um, they are not used to dominating matches, and they are not used to being the most superior team. Uh, they thrive against playing. Uh, they thrive on playing against teams like Argentina or Chile or Brazil that will monopolize possession, and they will hit on the counter attack. I am uh, very intrigued to see how Uruguay will handle this World Cup because I have never seen them win or play well when they uh, need to be that, that uh, favorite and, and, and they have to dominate the game. What I think is interesting with Uruguay too is I'm not a fan of their depth. I think they don't have the I don't think they have the quality one through 15 like let's say some of these other teams do, but they still have a lot of quality at the top. Which, if they can sort of put it all together and their and their sort of role players are able to step up in these big games, they'll have a chance to be tricky. Yes, but I just I, I don't buy into the, their depth. I just think they don't have enough underneath those sort of top five six players to really do any damage. Yeah, and I think and I think that that really uh, translates back to uh, something they have to avoid this this World Cup. Is leaving their world their their world class scorers uh, too isolated? Yeah, uh, they will have to be able to get good service, and I think uh, that's when their depth comes into. I do think though that many of their players, uh, even if they play in South American leagues, uh, they will have enough depth to 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 perform well. Uh, Uruguay is a massively talented squad, I believe. Perfect, Kose. Thank you very much for coming on the World Cup project. Tell us. Um what you may be working on, where people can follow you on Twitter, and anything else you would like to, uh, anything else you'd like to plug. Of course, thank you so much. Uh, uh, first of all, thank you uh, for having me. Very, uh, thank you very much. Uh, people uh, can follow me at at Coast Espinoza with double E uh, on Twitter. Uh, I follow a lot of La Liga, PSG, of course. Uh, but it's been an honor to be here and, and uh, talk all this out with you. Oh, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been your host, Mark Damon. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the World Cup Project. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the World Cup Project. Our next episode will feature PSG Talking contributor and youth coach Louis Jacques discussing the unique task of coaching a national team in the most important tournament in football. The theme for the World Cup project is provided by Dutch supergroup Orgel Vretten, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes or Spotify. The World Cup project has been brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site about Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on future episodes of the World Cup project. This has been your host, Mark Damon, and once again, au revoir for now.